Thank you. Hey, would you do me a favor? You've already kind of uh, done this, but would you turn to someone? If uh, you're sitting next to someone, you can just do it with that person. If you're not, uh, make eye contact with someone else. And then ask that person this question. Okay, listen carefully. Who are you? Seriously, ask that person. I, I see a lot of, like, hey, my name is so-and-so. No, no, I want you to look at that person again, and I want you to say it again. No, who are you? Ask that person. The social psychologist Eric Erickson said that when uh, in our adolescent period when uh, a child turns to like a teenager they have a crisis an identity crisis they're trying to figure out who they are and it's something if you remember when you were like in junior high school probably in high school you started kind of asking yourself this question you you were in a crisis um, what ethnicity am I? Am I really an American? I'm not sure. I don't look like the people on TV. What am I good at? I thought I was good in piano, but my mom was lying to me this whole time. <laughs> I know I'm not good in math, but my parents keep pu pushing me into the highest grade of mathematics that I can. Um, you know, I love these other things, but I don't know if I can really major in it or, or make a, a living doing uh, Video games, I, I, you know, that's something that I would love to do. Who am I? They define identity, listen carefully, as relationships, roles, characteristics, beliefs, values, accomplishments, experiences, and anything else that make up a person's subjective sense of the self. So meaning is not necessarily uh, just a, a set of uh, identification number, like if, uh, initially when someone asks you, who are you, you might think, well, my name is, well, who are you? Well, my social security number is, this is nine digit, my, my driver's license number. But when someone really presses you, no, I want to know the real you, who are you? And it, it's those things in which you bring subjectively to identify this is who I am. Like, for example, you might be either a male or female, but for some people, that maleness or femaleness may be so pronounced and important, that's one of the first things that you say, well, I am. And, and nowadays, uh, even gender is fluid a little bit, and people are questioning that. For other people, it could be an accomplishment, something that they did 20 years ago in high school. When I was in high school, I started as a point guard for my high school basketball team. I can't play anymore, but that's who I am. I used to be an athlete. It is my profession, or it is my role in my family. I am a daughter, I am a mom, I am a wife. Who am I? It is an existential question that Eric Erickson says we start asking ourselves even from a teenager. 
And see, if you wonder why your teenager sometimes acts crazy, it's, it's because they're trying to figure out who they are as opposed to what the parents have always said, this is who you should become. Who am I? Beyond high school, it is a question that you and I wrestle with. Coming out of college, when you start working, you ask yourself this question, am I really passionate about this major that I studied four years for? It is that question in which he thought, you know, all this time I was a child, but now I am a spouse, or um, now I am a, a parent. Oh my goodness. It is a question that when uh, people turn at uh, the age of 40, beyond, before 40, you used to think, you know, I have potential. People used to say, hey, you have potential to accomplish something. You, you turn that 40 years uh, old and you realize, I, I, I haven't accomplished much. I can no longer live off of potential. I am who I am. And so we have an existential crisis. Or you lived a whole life and you're uh, nearing your, your last quarter of your life. And you ask yourself the question, what do I do after everything? We've been going through the book of First Peter, and he's writing to a group of people who are in transition, who are in the midst of uncertainty, who are suffering. And we've been going a, a paragraph at a time, and I, I'm going to tell you how relatable this is. Our passage is First Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. If you have not turned or uh, fired up your app... First Peter chapter, 12, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. As Peter begins this particular section, he begins uh, with this, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And he ends in verse 11, abstain from passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. He says, don't be stupid and don't be ugly. In the midst of uncertainty, in the midst, in the midst of pain, in the, uh, in the midst of uh, anxiety, don't be hurtful. Don't be dumb. But uh, in between those two verses, it's not an instruction on how to like, be disciplined, work harder at not being hurtful. But the bulk of our passage today is really Peter saying, you are. You are. Instead of identifying yourself as who you think you are, what you um, lean into, but this is who you are. I want you to know that, embrace it, and live it. You are. And these are some of the words or phrases that he uses to describe uh, the Christians that he is writing to. You are like living uh, you're like newborn infants, like living stones, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a, a people for God's own possession, God's people, sojourners, and exiles. You are. And so if you would allow me for the next like 25 minutes now, I'm going to try to uh, convince you of who you are. Peter, if you are in Christ, says to you these four things should uh, identify you, you should embrace as who you are as an individual, as a person. Uh, newborn infants, living stones, chosen people, and exiles. The first we find in verses 2 and 3 that you are newborn infants. Like newborn infants, it says in verse 2, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is 
good. The first identity that Peter wants us to embrace is that we are like newborn infants, like we are babies, who long for the spiritual uh, milk, uh, pure spiritual milk. You know, one of the primary characteristics of a baby is that they long for milk, do they not? You don't have to uh, teach them that. You don't have to mentor them for that. You don't have to model milk for them. They just grow, they're, they're just born ready to eat. And Peter says that as Christians, that one of the first things um, that should identify us when we are born again, when we have the Holy Spirit within us, is that we ought to be hungry to know more about God. We ought to be hungry to hear more from God, which is God's word. You know, I am, um, and, and, and what, it, what he says is that as we input the word of God, as we feed the word of God, as like a baby who drinks milk, that baby grows and matures and so they go from uh, just lying around to uh, flipping over, to crawling, to uh, standing up, to taking their first steps, to changing themselves, to, uh, to you know, going to school, etc. That a baby is ba a baby, but they, they eat and they grow up and mature. And in that same way, uh, God says that by intaking the pure spiritual milk that you may grow up into salvation. Peter says something interesting, that salvation is not simply a one-time past event, but it is a process in which we continue to grow into. We're not only saved, but we continue to be saved. Like a baby is born, but the moment baby is born, that does not mean that that baby is finished with being a human being. That baby eats and matures and grows. And, you know, this encourages me in two ways. The first is this, that though all of us in some aspect of our lives, uh, even those of us who have been Christians for decades, there are parts of our lives in which we are spiritual babies. And that we may be immature and, and not fully developed in that particular area or truth of our lives, but what Peter is encouraging us with is this, that you are going to grow. You have the potential to grow. That you are not the person that you will eventually become. That is encouraging to me. The second way that this is encouraging is this, that I have a pathway for growth. I have a pathway for growth. It is not a mystery. The scripture is very clear. The Bible is very clear. If you want to grow as a Christian, if you want to become more mature as a Christian, uh, just uh, devour the things that God has said to you and about you, the Word of God. Now, um, it could take all forms. It could be coming to church on Sunday and, and listening to the sermon. And, and, you know, like you can come today and say, well, you know, I, I love the Word of God, but I don't know if I really like uh, the preaching at Living Hope. And that's okay. You know, sit there, open up the text, and just, just look at the text and see what God has to say to you. Have daily devotions. Open up your Bible or, or, or find a Bible app with a reading plan. And, and while you're driving to work, listen to it. Take a passage that, that strikes you, is meaningful to you. Write it on a, a post-it and, and post it somewhere. 
let it be meaningful to you. A question that someone may have, a thoughtful question that someone may have in this passage is this. Uh, Pastor Steve, and uh, you say, and I agree with you, that First Peter seems to say that a Christian, a born-again Christian, should innately and naturally hunger for the Word of God. After all, if we're born again and the Holy Spirit is in us, um, it seems natural that we begin to have, develop and have an, a natural appetite for spiritual things. But, Pastor Steve, what if I just don't? What if I don't care? What if I really don't care about spiritual truth? What if the Bible does not interest me? No matter how hard I try, I just don't care. It just doesn't strike me as something interesting or meaningful to me. Now, Peter has an answer for this, all right? Look at verse uh, 2 and 3 again. Like newborn infants long for the spirit, uh, pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now, here's, here's the explanation in verse 3. If, there's a strong if, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So Peter is uh, working off a hypothesis that you have tasted the, the goodness of the Lord, that you have at one point in time embraced the goodness of the Lord, the gospel, and you have become a Christian, a newborn, a born-again follower of Jesus Christ, but if you have absolutely no interest in spiritual truth, perhaps it's because you've never tasted the goodness of the Lord and that you are merely a cultural Christian. That's a strong warning that we need to consider. The second identity that Peter embraces is that of a living stone, a living stone. Um, Peter talks about Jesus Christ as the living stone and then Christians as living stones, verses 4 through 8. As you come to him, this is Jesus, a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to... to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that, is, that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to. Now, it's a long passage, but uh, let me just break down just a few things here. First of all, he says that in Zion, which is another word for uh, Jerusalem, it's, a, it's a, just another name for the city of Jerusalem, in Zion, there is a chosen and precious cornerstone and he's talking about Jesus Christ. He is also called the rejected cornerstone, the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, okay? Now, uh, the, the, the key term is cornerstone. Now, in this particular era, when they're building a building, uh, the most important piece of masonry that they would put down is a cornerstone. So imagine a building being built by big rectangular stones, and it's the very first stone that had to be exact, precise, because it determined not only the location of that building, but the angle of the building. So if they put that cornerstone like two degrees off, 
then the whole building will be two degrees hot because all the other stone will be based upon that particular stone. Now, uh, modern technology, they don't build in that way, but in, in modern technology, maybe a, a, maybe a similar kind of concept is that of the foundation. Uh, when we build a building, we, uh, the builders make sure, the contractors make sure that the foundation is secure. You know, when we moved into this building, for those of you who've been around like 10 years or so, if you remember the, the sanctuary, what it used to look like, there were two big columns right in the middle of the, the room. And we debated whether we're going to spend the money to get rid of those two columns or whether we'll just save money and have two columns forever in our sanctuary. Well, we decided that before we ever move in, we're going to spend money uh, doing earthquake retrofitting to make it safe and getting rid of those two columns. Now, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, it was, it was pretty impressive. Um, they took out the two old columns, and, and, and it was pretty interesting. And they put these new columns, but before they installed the new columns, one of the things that they did is this. Where the new columns were supposed to go, they cut the cement, and they dug a big hole the size of a small car. And, it, and, and, and I, I learned from this construction that if you want to build something that's high and wide, that can uphold the girth of that roof, that the foundation needs to be deep and wide and strong. Jesus is that cornerstone, that foundation. That's, and he is the one that the whole church and your faith and my faith is founded upon. Now, this encourages me in two ways. First of all, it encourages me to know that my faith is not based upon me. Because if it is, I'd be in trouble. And your faith, your beliefs, and your value, um, your Christianity does not, is not based upon that. But rather, it is based upon the foundation, the cornerstone, the truth, and the person of Jesus Christ. And your goal is not to make Christianity, but find Christ and try to align yourself as closely as possible. Oftentimes, uh, innovative so-called Christians will try to remake Christianity. And, and if, you, if you study church history, what you'll find is that oftentimes there will be these reformations. But the reformation is not to try to make a new brand of Christianity, but rather, listen carefully, uh, because a church has... has um, crept or have become misaligned, reformations are oftentimes saying, no, 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 that's not what Christ taught originally. Let me bring you back to Christ. The second reason why I am so in, uh, encouraged by this truth is this, that I am not, uh, I do not base my faith upon the foundation of Jesus Christ alone, but with others. Because there are times when I have blind spots and I, I, I don't see Christ because of my blind spots. And it is when I lock arms with other Christians, not only in this church, but in the city, in the county, in the state, in the country, around the world, throughout history. If there are truths that I don't quite understand, if, if there are uh, orthopraxies, things that I should be doing that I'm not doing, if there's uh, something that I don't mis 
I don't quite understand. I, I remember I was talking to, a, uh, listening to a church uh, leader, and he's saying, you know, when I'm confused, I sometimes look through church history to see what Christian leaders, thought leaders, have thought over the centuries and millennia to, to, real, to come back to Jesus Christ, the foundation, and to, uh, to realign with the orthodoxy of Jesus Christ. So when we are confused, we, we lock arms with others, and, and together we, are, we lean on Jesus Christ. The third, the third uh, identity is perhaps the most uh, helpful identity, and verse 9 is really well known. In fact, um, some preach verse 9 in four different sermons because there's such great truth. But uh, that this a third identity is that you are a chosen people, chosen people. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He says you are a chosen race. You, you know, we... We, we come from different racial identity, brown, black, white, red, or yellow, and, and, and our racial background is something God gave to us, and it's beautiful, but there's a transcending race that we are all part of as Christians, that we are a chosen race. We weren't uh, we are born into it. God chose you to be a part of this race. Uh, also, he says you are a royal priesthood that you may have a vocation, whether it be as a dentist or a teacher or an engineer, a housewife or a student, but he says, beyond all that, I have chosen you to be a royal priesthood. You are to be a mediator between a holy God and a sinful man. We have a calling. If you're, if you're not sure, hey, what is, what is that which I am supposed to accomplish on this earth? Well, you're called to be a royal priesthood, an ambassador that you are a holy nation. Some of us um, uh, are perhaps, or many of us are perhaps citizens of, uh, of the United States and we get confused as to what that means. But God says here through Peter that you may be a citizen of this earthly nation, but you are part of this holy nation, something uniquely different. And, you're, um, and we are all as Christians dual citizens and finally we belong to God that you are a people for his own possession. Do you remember the book of Exodus? Uh, so if you, if you know church history, I mean uh, the Old Testament history a little bit, you remember that the Hebrew people uh, were, lived in Egypt and for 400 years they were enslaved. And so they became second-class citizens in their own country. And they were so oppressed and abused that they thought of themselves as less than the majority culture people. And the majority culture people had such power over the Hebrews that at one point, point in time in their history, this is what happened. Uh, the Egyptians felt so threatened by the Jews because they were having too many babies and they were afraid, you know, if they keep having more babies than us, one of these days they'll overpower us just by sheer numbers. So what we're going to do is we're going to pass a, a decree and we're just going to drown baby boys that are born to the Hebrew people. And the Hebrews were helpless and powerless. 
What a terrible situation to be in. This was their identity. If, some, if, if, if you were to ask, if an Egyptian were to ask a Hebrew person during that particular era, who are you? One of the first things that they would have said was, I am a Hebrew, and they would put their eyes down in shame. We know the story. God delivers the Hebrew from the Egyptians, uh, brings them across the Red Sea, and I believe there's something symbolic about that, leaving behind their old identity as slaves. He, 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 give, he feeds them, gives them rest, brings them to the, uh, the feet of Mount Sinai, and God appears in thunder and cloud and earthquakes. Don't get near here. And, and he speaks through Moses, and he says, we're going to have a DTR, defining the relationship. Right? Okay, we're not just dating. We're going to get married here. Forever now. And this is where God detoxes the Hebrew people from their old identity. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Kind of sounds like First Peter, right? You thought of yourself as a less than. You thought of yourself as uh, your primary identity, as someone who serves the Egyptian, that your, your life is worth less than the others. But I'm going to detox you. I'm going to give you a new identity. Among the people, I've chosen you to be my prized possession. Once you were a people, it says in First Peter, once you, were, uh, once you were not a people, once you were nothing, but now you are God's people. You know, um, many people, many of, our, many of us, if someone were to ask you, who really are you? Your self-appointed, self-assigned identity. What some of us would, would uh, use what we've accomplished in life. I am this at work. Uh, uh, or something that you've accomplished in the past. I was the starting point guard for my high school basketball team for two games 20 years ago. And you still hang on to that glory two games, right? Well, this is my zip code. I work really hard. I have a mortgage I can barely maintain, but this is who I am. Others uh, point to relational identity. Well, um, I'm not much, but my dad, he's this. Or, or like, yeah, I'm just plain, but I, I married up most of the men in this room, right? Or like, hey, I didn't do much, but... I'm a father too, I'm a daughter, uh, I'm, I'm a father too, I'm a mother too. You know, it's interesting how, uh, especially in collectivistic cultures, more communal cultures, that a lot of times I, I, our identity is based upon our fam family relationships. I, I grew up in the Korean culture, and one of the things I kind of discovered along the way is that you call children by their names, for those of you who are Korean, you know, and then when you get to a certain age, people don't call you by their, your names. You're not allowed to. You, you call them, oftentimes, if they become a mom or dad, they, you, become, you call them by their child's name. So my, my parents have a best friend, that, like my mom and, 
and her best friend went to school in, in Korea, high school, and then et cetera, and, and they moved here, and I've known them for almost all my life, Mr. and Mrs. Pack. I don't know their names. I've never called them by their names. I have no idea what their names are. I have called them all my life by their first son's name. You are the mother of, right? And then for that particular culture, I'm not sure why it's like that, but uh, one of the primary identities is my child. And sometimes, listen, parents, we put so much of our identity on our children, saying, you need to accomplish so that I can feel valuable and successful. And there's so much pressure on them. You know, what I'm encouraged by, when God tells us you are a chosen people, is that, first of all, it's not because of anything I've accomplished or I've accumulated or I've graduated from or promoted into, but rather God simply chose me by his mercy. And it is not based upon my relationship, whether I'm married or single, how old I am or whom I am related to. All those are blessings of God, whether single or married, but... But my primary worth is in that I am a prized possession of God. Fourthly, now quickly, our last identity is that of an exile. Verse 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. He says that there are times when we may be confused as we are a child of God, how uh, much tension we experience in this lifetime, in this earth, in this culture. And he says, well, it's because... You are an exile, you belong to me, and uh, sometimes there are, we are at odds with this. You know, uh, Paul Tripp says there are two ways in which we look for meaning and purpose. And during these moments, um, and, and he says that uh, we, we get into these modes of, of having an identity amnesia, uh, social psychologists would say that we have an identity crisis. That during these moments, we look for meaning in horizontal or vertical ways. We look for meaning horizontally, meaning in my friendship, in my family, in my accomplishment, can I find purpose and meaning and worth and value? And we do that almost all the time, even Christians. But he says the problem with that is that uh, that was never meant, our horizontal uh, relationships, accomplishment was never meant to give us full contentment and, and value and meaning. They will always fail you. Even the best of parents will fail their kids. Even the best of kids will fail their parents. We have to lean on our vertical identity, which is Jesus Christ. And so when we're in the midst of uncertainty, you're graduating, um, college and you're wondering I, I you know I, I trained all my life to, to work but I don't find meaning at work uh, when, when you thought you know if I can get married or if I can have a kid you thought that would solve some things but you realize it didn't or you thought that you, you know, people told you you were smart, you had a lot of potential, and you grew up to be something really special, and you, you just celebrated your 40th birthday, and you realized, I, I'm not all that. Or you're at the last quarter of your life, and you're wondering, now what? 
I was talking to a parent uh, a few months ago who had an adopted child who became adolescent. And he told me that oftentimes adopted children, when they become a certain age, really begin questioning their identity. Like, who am I really? I, they can love their adopted, adopted parents, but who am I? Who is my biological mom and dad? Who defined who I am and my destiny? And this parent says that, that their, their child really, really wrestled with this, regardless of how much love that child got at this particular stage of life. And I believe that the reason Peter is telling us what he's telling us in the midst of transition, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of uncertainty, that we want to lean into our horizontal value and self-worth, but he says, really, if you want to be not ugly and stupid and hurtful, you have to lean into your vertical identity. Remind yourself over and over and over again that you're, you are a son of God, a daughter of God, loved uh, beyond uh, you can, what you can possibly imagine. I'm going to ask the band and the elders to come up at this time. And I believe it's because we tend to forget. We have these identity amnesia that Jesus, when he spends his last week, uh, gets his disciples to a table and he says, I want you to do this because you have the propensity to forget. And I want you to remember how loved you are, how valued you are, how much I think of you. And this bread and this uh, cup reminds you of the, the body and blood that was shed, uh, broken and shed for you. Uh, the servers will come around and if you are not a Christian, if you've never made that position, uh, profession of faith, I would ask you to just kind of uh, let it pass. But if you are a Christian and you still have unresolved sin in your life, I would ask that, you know, he's not asking for perfection, but he's asking for honesty. He's saying, Lord, this is what I'm wrestling with. 